We come now, of course, to a key passage in Isaiah 6 in the prophecy of Isaiah. Chapters 1 to 5 of the prophecy give us the outline of his main message as a prophet. And he gives us this before he tells us about his own call, his own commissioning to the prophetic ministry. He is not drawing attention to himself and therefore he doesn't put the contents of chapter 6 right at the start of the prophecy. His concern is that we should know the message. But at the heart of his ministry is this experience he has, this commissioning experience which brings him into the prophetic ministry. It seems that he is enabled to particularly remember this occasion by it being the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was a very long-lasting king in the history of Judah. He, in fact, reigned for 52 years, although the latter years, as a leper, he would have had a co-regent. And I don't think we are meant to understand that... um, that, that this prophetic vision was immediately after or as a consequence of the death of King Uzziah because if you look at the opening verse of the prophecy, chapter 1, verse 1, you read that this is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So clearly the prophet was... um, was ministering, in a sense, uh, in Uzziah's, uh, for a very short time in Uzziah's reign. But uh, perhaps a few months later from this vision, the king died. It was a critical time, was this, in the history of Judah, that the nation was weak in every sense, spiritually, politically, militarily, Its morals were fast decaying. We've seen that in chapters 1 to 5. And it desperately needed to return to the Lord. At the same time, the nation of Assyria in the north was rapidly growing as a world power, as a very aggressive world power. And there was considerable aggravation coming from the northern kingdom of Israel. This is, of course, after the disruption in the days of Rehoboam, uh, there was considerable aggravation coming uh, from the north, whether it was from Israel itself or from Assyria. So it was a crucial time, and we too perhaps feel that we're living, in a sense, in a crucial time in our own day. I want to look now at the vision that Isaiah had as he describes it to us in verses 1 to 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. What we 
read here is of this overwhelming vision to the prophets, not merely of God, of the Lord, as someone who is sinless, but as something far more disturbing in a sense, far more impacting upon him as someone who is completely holy. There is something more to holiness than sinlessness, a lot more in fact. There's this sense of incomparable majesty and glory uh, and this otherness of God. High, he says, lifted up. And the seraphim, these burning ones, uh, although they themselves are sinless, they cover their face, they cover their feet as they fly in the presence of almighty God. And there is this cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, perhaps a reference to the Trinitarian nature of God. We cannot be sure, but certainly the fullness of the number of three. The Puritan Stephen Charnock says, the holiness of God is his glory. As his grace is his riches, so holiness is his crown. And the effect of this vision of God's holiness is to make the created order, in verse 4, the posts of the temple door shake. It reminds us that when there was the presence of God, a theophany at Mount Sinai, uh, recorded in Exodus 19, that when God came down on the mountain, we read that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. There was this earthquake, there was this disturbance Huge disturbance in the earth at the presence of the creator God in all his majesty and holiness. If the effect on the uh, contours of the land or of the the temple was such, the effect on Isaiah himself in verse 5 was devastating because he cries out, even as a believer, he cries out, woe is me for I am undone or I am cut off. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's so consciousness of his humanness and of his uh, sinfulness. Even though as a believer that sinfulness would have been covered by the blood of Christ. Although perhaps he didn't understand all the aspects of that in those Old Testament days. And so we see that here is a a man of God, here is a believer, and in the presence, the nearness of God, he is not celebrating himself. He's not celebrating or clapping in the sense that man does, but he's utterly devastated. Now this is not some exaggerated pathological response on his part. He's not a psychiatric case. He's not a depressive. He is simply a sinner in the presence of the holy gods. Has God changed? No, he hasn't. Has man changed? Have we changed? 
in all our fallenness by nature? No, we haven't. And here surely is one sign of the nearness of God. Not man celebrating himself, but man brought to an awareness of his utter creatureliness and his sinfulness and the holiness and the otherness of God. That God is not a God to be trifled with. God is not someone to be reduced to human needs. From this time onwards, Isaiah would frequently refer to the Lord as the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One. If there's one aspect of God that is covering all his attributes, it's this, it's his holiness. The essence of God is in his holiness. The Apostle Peter is surely reflecting on that when in his first letter in chapter 4, he says the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? He's saying it's it's bad enough for us. It's awesome enough for us. It's frightening enough for us. It disturbs us. Even though we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Even though we are accepted in the beloved. And yet the presence of God is so disturbing To the sinless angels, let alone sinful creatures like us, what will the end be for those who have to face God in their sins? And how is it with you? Are you still in your sins? Are you still without the righteousness of Christ imputed to you? Are you still without the blood of Christ cleansing you? What would it be like for you to come face to face with this awesome, immense being who created the stars in the moment, who created man in his image, who created all things and will end all things with awesome power and glory. Well, this was the vision that Isaiah had, a holy God. But we see, secondly, how God met the need of the prophet. As he cries out, God meets that need. Verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. The commentators on this passage can't seem to make up their mind whether it's the altar for burnt offering, burnt offerings, or whether it is the altar of incense. It doesn't make too much difference. What is clearly the fact is that God is not leaving Isaiah to work his way out of this mess that he feels he's in. God is not leaving Isaiah to do something about this sense, even though he is a believer, this subjective sense that he's been utterly cut off because of his sinfulness. But he, the Lord, takes the initiative. He comes to the rescue. And once more he does what he would have done Right from the start in the believing life of the prophet, he applies to him the merits of the Lord. Notice that the seraphim, the angel, takes the coal with the tongs and the altar. The angel applies it to his mouth. (coughs) Isaiah doesn't think of this. 
Isaiah doesn't contribute to this. Isaiah is the recipient of this. You see, that's what it means when it says salvation is a work of sovereign grace. I'm not speaking now as though Isaiah is here being converted. I believe he was converted earlier. But in the sense that this is a a picture that illustrates in his commissioning something which is true of us in salvation, it's Christ who dies for the ungodly. It's Christ who dies for sinners. And it's God who devises that great way of salvation. And it is God who brings to us that blessing. And this passage is full of Christ because the altar speaks of the sacrifice of Christ. The altar of incense speaks of his merits. The altar in which the burnt offering is offered speaks of him, himself, becoming a propitiation for our sins. And the touching of the lips, the touching of the mouth of the prophet speaks of the application of the merits of that atoning work to that place where Isaiah is most sensitive his sinful lips and the sinful lips of the people around. Even prophets are sinners saved by grace. God meets that need. And nobody else can meet the need of your heart, dear friend, other than God, other than what God has done in Jesus Christ. You cannot meet it through human wisdom or human resources. You cannot meet it through even the church, through even the most ancient traditions and the most long-lasting church denominations or independent churches. Only God can meet your need. And that's why one of the great cries in the book of Isaiah is that people should turn directly to God. Listen to what Isaiah has to say. In chapter 55 of his prophecy, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Incline your ear and come to me. God met that need. And it's God alone who can meet the need of sinful men and women like us. But thirdly, we see that this is on the payment of a price. That cleansing of the lips of Isaiah, that symbolic, if you like, uh, cleansing, which reflects a real transaction in the life of the prophet. It comes at a price. It's all to do with the altar. It's all to do with the place of sacrifice. In perhaps of burnt offerings or the incense offered up as part of the sacrifice. It's all to do with someone else paying the price than the prophet himself, than the recipient of that grace himself. It's to do with a ransom or a redemption price that God himself pays. And even the fire on the altar is God's. Not even man himself is responsible ultimately for that fire. Where does that fire come in in the history of Israel? It comes in in Leviticus chapter 9 and verse 23 and 24. When the offering up of the sacrifice is being 
done by Aaron. Uh, Verse 22, perhaps, of Leviticus 9. Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And that fire was kept burning. In the Old Testament, it was never allowed to go out. It only went out when the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. A picture of the eternal efficacy of Christ's sacrifice, a picture of God himself providing the flame in which Christ would suffer and bear our sins. And here is a remarkable thing, that the one who will come down and in his own body on the cross suffer for our sins is in fact the one who is here seated on his throne. Now I say that not just simply because of the fact that we can deduce because this is the triune God, that God the Son is, as it were, present on that throne. But we have a direct reference to this occasion in the Gospel of John, in what the evangelist says about the ministry of Jesus and those who believed and didn't believe on him. Listen to this in John 12, verse 39. Therefore they, that is the Jews in Jesus' day, could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Now that's a reference to later on in Isaiah 6, to the terms of his commission. And listen to the next verse. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory... And spoke of him. But he's talking about the son of man. He's talking about Jesus and the reception of his ministry. The same one who's high and lifted up and on the throne. Is the one who will make atonement on the cross. The one who will become the fulfillment of the burnt offerings. The sacrifice. The sin offerings. And all the other offerings. The one whose merits will be as an incense to Almighty God on behalf of his people. Wrath is turned away from us because of what Jesus Christ suffered. It was at the payment of a price. This is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. And this leads us to recognize this very important point to do with verse 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now perhaps if you've been a Christian for a while you will have heard this this verse preached on and you might well have heard it preached on in the context though here there's this tremendous need in the world, uh, need to hear the gospel and here is the word of God, Whom shall I send and who will go for us as a missionary or whatever? And I'm not saying that's totally illegitimate to speak like that. But we have to understand the context here. 
Isaiah's commissioning is based on the redemption and on the purging of his sin and on the atonement that he has seen portrayed before him in Old Testament terms. This is not some missionary call or some prophetic call that is isolated from everything else in the Christian life, in the Christian faith or the faith of Yahweh. It's because of Calvary that he is going to be a prophet. And it's because of Calvary that people become missionaries and pastors and preachers and witnesses, ordinary witnesses for Christ. And doesn't that put a a strong interest on the question here that he hears from the voice of the Lord, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here is an undoubted reference to the Trinity. If the threefold nature of the holiness of God in verse 3 possibly implies the Trinity, here in verse 8 there is no mistaking of the fact that we have someone here who is both I and us. Both one and three. Both the Adonai, Adonai, the sovereign one, but also us. Let us make man in our own image. The same Trinity creating, redeeming, and commissioning, intensely interested in taking the message of Jesus Christ into all the worlds. Then I said, here am I, send me. That's all he says. Nothing else is appropriate. He's just a little person. He is so unworthy of the honor. And he just has to say this, here am I, send me. This, this isn't a career choice, is it? This isn't Isaiah patting himself on the back and saying, well, I know that God needs me. I know the world needs me. It is his privilege and his honor. He's, been, he's here being appointed by the Lord in all his glory. He's being appointed by Christ. As the Apostle Paul himself, who had a similar experience on the Damascus Road, as he saw the Lord Jesus high and lifted up, as he saw him in all his resurrection glory, he himself has to say this, that we don't need letters of commendation to prove that we are apostles. We don't need churches to write letters to make any proof about us because it's quite obvious that the message we preach and the way in which the Spirit of God uses that message makes it clear that this message is from God, appointed by Christ. There's this inward compulsion, of course, in Isaiah. He's not press-ganged into this. There's this inward compulsion. He's been sent by the Lord. Romans chapter 10 makes the same point concerning the preaching of the word of God. Romans chapter 10 and verse 15. How shall they preach unless they are sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. We come now, perhaps in a little bit more 
length, but not, I trust, too long, we come now to consider his commission. It's a difficult commission. With the privilege comes the difficulty, and how often that is the case, is it not? And he, that is the Lord, said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? Here the prophet is in essence being given the same commission as the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Remember that Jesus, as he was preaching about the key parable, the parable of the sower, and as he was answering the question, why he spoke in parables, he quotes this very part of Isaiah 6, that this paradox that they will hear and yet they will not understand, that they will see and yet they will not perceive. What should make clear, in fact, will make them more obscure, more misunderstanding. What should clarify, in fact, will make them duller and heavier and shut their hearts because of their sin, because of the sins that have been already outlined in the case of Judah in chapters 1 to 5. And it's a difficult commission that the prophet, he's to preach the word in season and out of season. He's to proclaim whether or not they will hear or forbear, but it's going to harden them and it's going to make them worse. It's very similar to the ministry of Jeremiah. And there are ministries and there are days like that in the ministry of the word of God. There's no question of that. And perhaps in a small way, as a nation and as a Western world, we have been living through such a time in a small way. I don't think as bad as Isaiah's day. And he says, how long? Of course he says, how long? Not just because it's a hard commission, Not just because it's going to be really difficult, but because he's so concerned for the people. How long will they be hardened? How long will the message, in fact, make them worse? The message is good. The message is saving. But how long will it just harden them? And the answer is all the way, all the way, until the whole place is devastated. Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man. A man, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Right through from around 720 BC when he is exercising his ministry, right through to 587 BC when Nebuchadnezzar comes in. All the way. Things will get worse. But you've got to do it. And yet, here at the end of this passage, at the end of this commission, there is a note of hope. But yet, a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. Now he's mentioning the terebinth and the oak Because these are deciduous trees. They're large trees, but they're deciduous. So comes the winter, like the trees around us 
outside today, they lose their leaves. And eventually they appear lifeless. Eventually they appear as though there's no life in them. But when the season is right, when the conditions are right, they will grow again. And what he's saying is this. It's very condensed. It's, it's very uh, clustered together. In verse 13, a tenth will be in the land. There will be a remnant. There will be those who will return. And this is speaking of the return from the exile. But they will be for consuming. Although they will return, not all of them will be godly. Some will be as sinful as Israel up to this point, as Judah up to this point. But even within that sinful returning party, there is a holy seed. Because a stump has life in it. The stump has life in it. In other words, there will be a remnant of the remnants. But it will be a real remnant, a nucleus for a new Israel. And so you see what starts in the prophecy of Isaiah as a note almost of great despair in chapter 1, verse 4, as he thinks of the seed as he thinks of the seed of Abraham and what it has become at this point, a last sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Now, at the end of this, this particular uh, chapter in the Isaiah prophecy, this particular group of chapters, it now turns to hope. Yes, This is a a seed that's sinful and will be judged, and yet a tenth will return. And even within that, there will be a small number who really are the holy seeds. And that is what chapters 7 and 8 begin to unfold, about that tiny holy seed, including Isaiah and his family, the remnants. What matters as we look at this deciduous tree, this huge oak with all its leaves, so impressive and so large, it doesn't matter all the leafiness of it. What matters is whether the tree itself has sap and vitality. What is the sap? What is the vitality of the tree? Well, it's the holy seed. This is what gives the nation any possibility of blessing and continuance. What matters is those who truly have trusted in God and cast themselves upon the mercy of the Lord and trusted in Messiah and trusted in his saving work. You see, it's the same today, is it not? It's the same today. What matters ultimately is not how many people are entering churches, although, of course, we long to see many people entering churches and hearing the gospel. But ultimately what matters, as in the days of Jesus and Matthew 13, when great crowds crowded around Jesus, Jesus himself says to his disciples, look, calm down. What matters is where the soil is good and will bring forth much fruit. That's the remnant. That's what matters. The others, sadly, have not got the right sort of soil. 
You know, it's a tremendous privilege as well as a tremendous responsibility to serve God in a day of small things. It's a tremendous responsibility, brothers and sisters in Christ, to be part of the remnant, to be part of this holy seed in such a difficult day. Because it's from this stump that the new growth will come. Maybe one of us will witness to somebody and years later that person will be converted and that person will become someone through whose ministry God saves many. Maybe this church in the providence of God will dwindle down to a a mere handful and yet one day, perhaps 50, 60, 100 years down the line if Jesus hasn't returned, this church will be visited with God's revival blessing. And there'll be a church there because of the holy seed. Of course, I speculate. I don't know what God intends. But it's a tremendous privilege and responsibility. If God has caused you to be part of the holy seed in the stump, we should have a sense not of pessimism, but of optimistic expectancy. God has his seasons. Trees have their seasons. They shed their leaves, but there's spring. There's a winter, but then there's spring. And as the book of Isaiah unfolds, the remnant has its glorious seasons. Listen to this. Just a a peek forward in Isaiah chapter 49. We're going to come to an end in a minute, but listen to this. Isaiah 49, verse 18. Lift up your eyes, look around and see. All these gather together and come to you. As I live, says the Lord, you shall surely clothe yourselves with them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. For your waste and desolate places, notice we're back to the waste, we're back to the winter and to the devastation. Your waste and desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children you will have after you have lost the others will say again in your ears, the place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. Then you will say in your heart, who has begotten these for me? Since I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive and wandering to and fro, and who has brought these up? There I was, left alone, but these, where are they? You can sense the admiration and yet the bewilderment in Judah. Where did these come from? Where did, these, where did this seed of the Lord come from? This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Because as far as I was concerned, I was in winter. I was just part of that little stump in winter. A captive wandering to and fro. See, dear friends, it is a privilege and a responsibility upon us to recognize that we must bear witness to Christ and that God's is the kingdom and the power and the glory and to trust him and to keep on serving him.